Well, if you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, please. We're going to pick back up in our study here. We've been off of this study for a couple of weeks. Uh, If you might uh, recall, we had uh, a team from the States, from our sending church that came to help do some of the construction, and Pastor Brad was here. And so he he shared the word a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we had the... uh, the Vickery's come down from Oxford. We did a dedication service at the new building, which was a beautiful time. And so Pastor Steve and his family were here for church, and, and Steve uh, shared the word last week. And if you hadn't had a chance to hear either one of those, I really want to encourage you to go back online at our website. You can listen to those messages. They were just absolutely wonderful. But today we're going to go back into our study of 1 Timothy. We come to chapter 5. And so just to bring us back to where we've been, when we last studied uh, this letter... Paul had really come to a conclusion about speaking uh, directly to men and women about their conduct in the church. He has been talking about conduct quite a lot throughout the letter. He's not done. It's sort of going to be addressed here as well, but he had sort of ended that subject and the qualifications as well of leaders in the church to direct his attention uh, directly to Timothy. He gave Timothy some instructions regarding his own conduct as a young minister in the church. And we looked at what makes a good minister of Jesus Christ or a servant of Christ. And Paul really was asking Timothy to examine his own personal life and his own ministry. And so we studied chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. We took two weeks to look at that. And we looked at the qualities that make a good minister of Jesus Christ. Now we come to chapter 5. And here in chapter 5, Paul is advising Timothy on how to relate to the different groups which make up the family of God. And when you think about uh, a church family, there's all kinds of different groups of people in it, aren't there? You have older people and you have younger people. You have bigger people and you have little people. You have married people and single people. You have people from different backgrounds, people who have different jobs. You have all kinds of groups of, of people in the church. All these individuals making up different groups, and they're all still part of one uh, family. And I think it's significant that we think about the church as a family. Paul certainly does. He mentions uh, the church as a house of God back in chapter 3. This is a household of God. God is our Father. We're members of His household. And so family, when you think of family, family should bring up thoughts of closeness and and intimacy and care, openness, security, and certainly above all, love. Our memory verse, one of the verses that was given to us at the beginning of the year was John 13, 34 to 35, which is a perfect verse for us to memorize because it was a new commandment from Jesus, if you remember. He gave a new commandment to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And certainly love is to be a key integral part of a family, but it's certainly the backbone of the church family. So when you think of that, what are the marks of a loving family? There might be a lot of things that you might think of, a lot of things that might pop into your mind. Um, But Paul has some specific things in mind as he goes into this section. One of those things is respect. One of the things that we target teaching in our biblical parenting class, if you've been through it, is respect. Do you recall? Respect is a key thing in your parenting. You are in those young ages of your children being quite young, teaching them to respect authority. It's of utmost importance that they learn it in the home. Because if they don't learn it in the home, then they're going to go off and they're going to learn it from their friends. They're going to go learn it in school. They're going to go learn it out of school because they just got kicked out. They're going to learn it on the streets. But the ultimate end of that, they might end up learning that in prison, but they're going to learn respect. But you see what happens is the cost gets greater. You will learn respect in this world. And how much better is it that they learn to respect in a loving, caring environment such as a home. And Paul is going to really talk about uh, respect in this section. Another mark of a loving family is responsibility. 
Maybe you haven't really thought about that, but a loving, caring home should really have everyone participating in the care and function of the home. That should be, that should be a key thing. Our children must learn what responsibility is, and you should begin to give them responsibilities. Now, you don't do that when they're young and they're infants. That's not going to turn out so well if you say, Jude, dinner's on you. I mean, you're going to be in trouble there. Or maybe not. I mean, you like cereal. I don't know. But, you know, you, you, as they get to certain ages, you go, now this is a responsibility we're handing over to you. And as they prove themselves faithful in that, then you give them greater responsibility. That's an important thing. They develop skills in, in them, but also it, it, it gives them confidence for the future. It also helps them to take responsibility for their own lives so that when they move out, they're able to, to function as an adult. I think another key area, aspect of love, a loving family is, is service. The home is a wonderful place for us to learn what it means to serve one another. I think, sadly, a lot of kids don't learn that in the home. I think a lot of kids grow up just, just being served all their lives. That's all they've ever known is that they're just being served, um, never learning what it means to serve. And so they grow up, and maybe they're believers, and they end up in a church, but they simply then don't get it. Why are my needs not being met? Why am I, why am I not getting my way? It's because they've never learned service. Our Savior came not to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The home should be a, a very great place for us to learn sacrificial service. How do we serve one another? However, however you can figure out how to do that. Small ways are helpful, whatever you can find to do. My wife works hard to, uh, to make a lovely meal for, for us in a home. That our, our, one of our rules is mom gets to go put up her feet after that, and, and we go serve her. We'll, we'll clean up. We'll go do that. Now, it doesn't always happen like that, but, but that's just a way. It's like, no, kids, this is, this is how we serve mom back. She's served us. Now we serve her in ways that we can serve one another. Because the truth is we're to practice these things in the church. The church should be a place where we see us respecting one another, the church should be a place where we are taking responsibility for different things in ministry, and it should be a place where we are practicing service. And so Paul is going to address these three things in a very interesting way, bringing up different groups within the, the, the household of, of God. So it's a long section. Let me just read through it here, and then we'll dive into our study. It's chapter 5. It's verses 1 through 16 we're going to get through today. So chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together in this place to study, to study it, to read it, to uh, seek to understand it, that we might apply the truths within these verses to our lives. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with us, that you would illuminate truth, Lord, that you would help us to see the very important principles that are um, within this passage, Lord, principles that, Lord, you would, you would seek to see carried out within your household. This is your church. It's your family. And we, Lord, desire uh, to live accordingly. So I just pray that your spirit would be with us, that you'd guide us into truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, within the framework of a believer's love for each other is a very necessary and it's often overlooked uh, element. And it's not a fun one, but it's confronting sin. Disobedience must be dealt with in a family. It's a mark of a family. Proverbs 13, 24 tells us that he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So it's very important in a, in a family, in a, a biological family, that, that discipline is there, that there's correction for uh, wrongdoing. It is a sign of love. And so discipline, correction, must also take place in a church family. It's also a mark of love, but it must be handled properly. So Paul is going to begin to address this area of family respect. This is family respect. And an unpleasant but necessary element of church in, that's full of love and care is, is discipline. But when you correct a sinning church member or when you have to discipline one, how do you do that? I mean, they're part of a family. What's the best way? Well, the first verse here really sets the principle of correction in the family. Look at verse 1. It says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Now, there's two key terms used in this passage, and we need to understand both of them so we understand uh, what he's talking about. The first comes from the phrase, do not rebuke. That phrase, do not rebuke, is one word in the Greek, epipleso, and it means to strike upon or to chastise with words. It's a harsh word. It's only used here in the New Testament, and it speaks of a harsh or, or violent uh, rebuke. And if you think about your own biological family, and maybe particularly fathers, do, uh, do your family members respond well with harsh and violent rebuking? I mean, do you get the response that you are desiring <laughs> when you go out and, and use a harsh, violent attack? Obviously not. It doesn't generate really what you're hoping to, to get. They probably don't respond the way you'd like them to. Now, rebuking in a church is, is, is meant to be something that does take place. So here he says, do not rebuke an older man. But I want to just show you that this word rebuke is used in the New Testament often throughout it. And, um, and specifically throughout the pastoral epistles, but I'm just going to show you one right here in chapter 5. Just skip ahead to verse 20. Look at verse 20 there. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. So there it is, that it says to rebuke those who are sinning, but here it's a different word. It's a word that means to correct or to admonish. So I don't want you to get me wrong. We are to correct people. We are to correct uh, sin, but we're not to be harsh or violent with our words, which is the word he uses in verse 1. So don't, don't rebuke an older man. Instead, we're to exhort him as a father. That word exhort is the other word we should consider. It's parakaleo, and it means to encourage. It means to admonish. It means to entreat or appeal. It can also be translated to strengthen as you come alongside one who is weaker. You strengthen them correcting them, and pointing them toward righteous living. That is the idea. There is a related word to that. It's parakletos. It's a title for the Holy Spirit as well. So you think about the Holy Spirit's strengthening power in our lives, who uses the Word of God to strengthen us within us, right, so that we can be um, moved towards holy living. You often don't need someone else to point something out. The Holy Spirit should do some convicting within yourself, right? It's like, this is the direction you need to go. So this is the idea is that there's not uh, harsh, violent words used, but rather a gentle exhortation. This is not the direction you want to go. This is, this is why you're struggling with these things. 
you need to go in this direction. So sin is confronted, but not harshly. The goal here should be restorative, right? Redemptive. That's what you want to see. A great example of this is in Galatians 6.1. It says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Great example there. So Paul here in verse one has set the principle for dealing with sin, not harsh rebuke, but correction that's done in gentleness. So now he's going to show Timothy how to apply that to the different categories of people you find in the church. The categories are older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. So let's look at older men first. He says here that you should not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, as a father. Confronting sinning older men must take place with the same deference and respect that you would show your own father. Think about having to correct your own father. I had a pastor friend back at Grace Chapel. He actually had to do that. His, his father was an alcoholic. He wasn't, he wasn't providing for the family. Um, th this young man was actually on church staff at this point, And he said, I'm going to have to confront my father. <laughs> like, pray for me. And he, and he went into that with, a, with this passage in mind, that he's still my father. And so I must show him the proper respect. I need to correct him with gentleness. So the Bible, when you read the Bible, it's crystal clear that there is amount, a certain amount of respect that's to be given to older people, isn't there? I think of Leviticus 19.32, it says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. A little bit of gray is coming in, so I'm, I'm, it's, here it comes. <laughs> But, but not just old people. I mean, fathers and mothers together are to be treated respectfully. And he says you should treat him or exhort him as a father. So you just think back to, to Exodus and to the, the commandments. We're to honor our fathers and mothers. One of my favorite Proverbs speaks of this. It's Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, a, a picture, isn't it? I mean, when you don't honor your parents, then your eyeballs should be plucked out and eaten. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty harsh. Now, I think about, are there any examples, biblical examples that we can look at of, of men who had to sort of rebuke older men? Are there great examples? I got, I got two for you. One of them is in the Old Testament. I think of Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't his father, but he was, he was an old, older than Daniel, and, and he was the king. Like he, he, he deserves some respect. You, you would respect the king. And this is, what he, this is what he addresses with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. He doesn't say, you know, king, you're just this pagan, you know, I'm not listening to you. In fact, never do you see that. Um, he was very respectful to the king. He says, oh, king, maybe you would just hear my, my words. Um, stop sinning, <laughs> is what he says. Like, you should just stop doing that. Uh, here's a way that you could do that. Maybe you, you are, are more gentle with the poor. Maybe you're, you're showing mercy to them. Maybe your prosperity will lengthen because of that. Just, just think about my my wisdom, right? It's, it's, it's a wonderful, very gentle way that he addresses Nebuchadnezzar. Another example is in the New Testament. I know you're familiar with this one. You might remember that Paul had to confront Peter, didn't he? Um, Peter uh, was really sort of getting influenced by the other Jews. He would, he would have food with the Gentiles. He would lounge around with them, no problem. But when, when certain Jews came, then he started to do the little separating thing. And he would go and just eat with only uh, Jews. And Paul noticed that and thought, this isn't, this isn't right. And in Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14, this is where you find the account. It says this, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, 
live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Now, you could read this, and, and maybe I did this when I was younger. Oh, he withstood him to his face. And almost things like he just got in his face. But that's not what he said. He, what he's saying is that I actually confronted him face to face. He didn't go around and talk about him behind his back. He, he went to him and said, this isn't right the way you're living. In fact, because it was happening with these, these groups, he did it in front of them. He said, let me just ask you a question, if I may. So this is how he confronted them, with a question. Jesus often confronted people with a question, didn't he? Or he answered their questions with another question. But here he says, if you're, you're a Jew and you are okay with living in the manner of the Gentiles, the way they live, um, and, and not as Jews, you're okay. Why are you compelling Gentiles to go live as Jews? Because that's what they were doing. They're saying, oh, you can be saved, you can follow Christ, but you must still be a Jew. So you must be circumcised, you must do all these things. But this doesn't make any sense. He just was sort of provoking his thought process a bit, but in front of others. And he knew he was, caught, he was called out there. So Paul did that with gentleness as well. That's a great model there. How about younger men? If you go back to our passage, it's not just older men, but he says younger men as well, younger men as brothers. So what does it mean to exhort young men as brothers? Well, brothers are also family members, aren't they? And, and you are all my brothers in this, this room, and some of you are my sisters, okay? But what this means is that there's not superiority. We're, we're, we're family, we're brothers. And so often when you read through Scripture, the relationship in the church is, is called brotherhood. Just to give you a few verses here, I put them all in one slide. You see 1 Peter 2.17 says, Love the brotherhood. Romans 12.10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Hebrews 13.1, Let brotherly love continue. So there should be brotherly love. But having brotherly love does not preclude confronting sin. You still do it. So remember, all this is in the context of confronting sin. How do you do with an older man? How do you do with a younger man? as a brother, as you would a brother. Now, some of you are thinking back, like, I know how I confronted sin with my brother. <laughs> Let me tell you, I would just, you know, I would just pound him. That's not what we're talking. Don't look at your own family, brother relationship. This is the house of God where we're to have kind, affectionate love for one another. A great example comes from 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 to 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So he's not an enemy. Yes, you're not to partake in that sin. In fact, there probably should be a separation. Don't keep company if he's not listening and he's going on in sin. You can have that separation because he needs to see the folly of his ways, but admonish him not as an enemy. He is your brother. So in other words, in humility, in, in love. How about older women? It says also here, older women as mothers. So just like the respect that's given to older uh, men as fathers, older women are to be given the same parental respect, but as mothers. Another great example of this uh, is Philippians chapter 4. Now, I want to remind you that when Paul wrote these letters to these churches, they were read out loud. So Paul, in this letter, is going to call two older women out in this letter. So this letter will be read out loud, and these two women he's addressing in front of them. Philippians 4, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So this, so Iodia and Syntyche are sitting there going, whoa, but what was happening? They, they didn't have, they had a disagreement. They, they weren't of the same mind. And Paul is saying this, listen, I just want to ask you, would you help them get to the same mind? Because they're, they're women who labor with me in the gospel. You see what he says? They're fellow laborers. He wasn't calling them out as enemies. There was great respect and gentleness in the way he dressed that. Yes, it was in public. And we just see that in verse 20, as I pointed on, it said, we're to point out sin even sometimes publicly. But he says, this, you, just, you need to address, address this, but it can be done gently. They are women and they are mothers. There's also one more group, and that's younger women. Younger women, he says, as sisters, but then he adds, with all purity. Do you see that? So similar to the younger men being treated as brothers, we're to treat our younger women 
but as sisters, and then he adds, with all purity here. Now, why does he add that? Now, this is very interesting. You think back to the Old Testament, and you think of incest. Incest took place sometimes, but it was strictly forbidden. You read Leviticus, you read Deuteronomy, it was a a forbidden thing. Here, Paul adds the phrase, with all purity, to stress the importance of being completely free. So as, as a leader going to address younger women, uh, address their, their sin, being completely free from any hint of any lust toward younger women. A pastor, a, a leader who sins physically or even mentally with, with a young woman, think of it this, has committed spiritual incest. That's what he's saying. So this needs to be done with all purity. Sin in the life of a young woman, you, you still have to deal with that, he says, but, but in addition to being gentle and humble and, and being loving, you need to guard yourself against um, any t- and temptation toward lust. Keep your heart uh, pure. She's a sister, and she deserves respect, as do all the other members of the family. So here Paul has just touched all the different groups of uh, a church family in the context of correction and sin, and he says, even with that, even with such a hard thing, there needs to be family respect. The next area that he's going to talk about now is family responsibility. Family responsibility. I'm going to move around a little bit because it's sort of separated around, but just follow along with me. And as he talks about family responsibility, he's going to look at one particular group within the family to talk about this, and it's it's widows. So look at verse 3. He says, honor widows who are really widows. Now, there is a special responsibility in the church to care for widows. That, that's, 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 that's obvious. You go to James chapter 1, verse 27. James says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Why does James say that? Why is it so important? Why is that pure religion, as he calls it, to visit orphans, to visit uh, widows? Because it demonstrates the heart of God. God's heart is for the the fatherless. He's the father to the fatherless. God's heart is for those that cannot provide for themselves. Now, I just want to show you that in relation to widows, what the Bible describes God as. Just let let me do that for a moment. First, the Bible shows God as a protector of widows. And widows are to look at God as such because they might feel vulnerable, right? They don't have a husband. So God says, you need to look to me as being your protector. In Psalm 68, verse 5, it says this of God. He's a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. In Deuteronomy 10, 18, it says he administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. So he is the one that's looking out for those who need protecting. He is their protector. In fact, there's another passage in Exodus 22, 22 to 24. It says this, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. That's pretty harsh. If, if you go harm someone who has no parent, right? You go harm a widow who has no, no husband, then I'm going to do some killing myself and you're going to experience what it is like. You see God's heart? I'm protector of the fatherless and the widow. But he's also their provider. He's their provider. Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates, and they may come and they eat and be satisfied. The Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So God, in, in, in here, in sort of the, the, the tithe that would be given of the produce, made provision for, for widows, that they would be provided for. That just shows the heart of God. He's their protector. He's their provider. We see the same thing in Jesus himself, by the way. Uh, Jesus in Luke 7, um, speaking, uh, speaking to a, a widow, who has just lost a son. In verses 12 to 13, it says, when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He said, do not, do not weep. Do you remember what he did there? 
He just basically just healed the guy in the coffin, and the guy just sat up, which I just, I would love to have seen the reaction there, by the way. Like, oh, he's not dead. But there you see, it says he had compassion. He, he had compassion. He has the same heart as the heart uh, that God has for widows. But also, he carries the same sort of threat that God does. Remember, God says, you don't, you harm one of them, I'm going to harm you back. A condemnation. Mark 12, 38 to 40, Jesus said this to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So Jesus there very much shows if you're going to go devour widows' houses, in other words, you're going to just take everything they have, you're not going to provide for them, then, then you're going to have condemnation coming your way. So I just wanted to show you that, that the, the heart of God is for the fatherless, for children, for widows. And widows are directly being addressed uh, here. Now, when you think of a widow, the English word describes a woman who has lost her husband because he has died. That's what we think of when we think of a widow. But the Greek word, kera, it includes that, okay? It includes that a, a, a husband has died, but it's not limited to it. The word means robbed. So robbed of a husband or bereft of a husband or literally lacking a husband. And so while it can mean uh, a woman lost her husband because he died, it also can include she lost him because he deserted or there's been divorce or even he's been imprisoned for life. You're never seeing this man again. And so it's a, a broader term than we understand. So a widow who is truly alone, without resources, we're told right here is to receive honor. Honor widows who are really widows. Now, honor there means to value or to treat graciously, but also means to support, so can encompass even financial support, which I think is what he's getting to here. You might remember that Jesus uh, quoted uh, Exodus's command to honor your father and mothers when he was rebuking the Pharisees because they were dodging their responsibility to care for their parents because they had made this little man-made law, Corbin, oh, whatever I had to give to them, I'm giving to God. I'm giving to God. He says, actually, you're disobeying scripture. The Bible says you are to provide for your, um, your parents there. And so he says, you aren't honoring them at all. And when he says honor, it, he, he's speaking of the honor of supporting them. So widows deserve special care and provision. And this brings up a question. Whose responsibility is it? Where does that come from? Yes, God is their provider. God is their protector, but he uses earthly means. Who is primarily responsible? And I think you'll find this very enlightening. First responsibility is placed on her biological family. Firstly, her biological family, okay? And the, the, the family has the primary responsibility for widows, not the church first. And I'm going to show you this. He's actually going to give four arguments here. And the first is this. Children owe it to their parents. Children owe it to their parents. Look at verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. Parents, put up a hand. Any parents in the room? A few of you? Put up your hands. Let me see. Could you honestly say, as a parent, your children might owe you something? I mean, I, we, we provide for them. I'm sure it means that. But I think beyond that, I think back to my wife having to clean things like poo off a wall. I think of the stories I hear of the vomit in people's beds. Uh, I, I, I remember having to clean that up sick going down the hall and, and hoovering it all up into a thing and then that getting emptied down the hall and having to hoover it up again. I, you have, we, we, we deserve some payback here, parents, is what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Like, you, you, you have worked hard taking care of your kids. And that's what he's saying. Listen, listen, if a widow has any children or grandchildren, anyone, they need to repay her. She has worked hard for the kids and they need to do it and learn piety at home. Very interesting that he says that. They owe it to their parents. And I do think that um, this, this is, this is uh, 
you know, God's, God's heart. And Jesus shows us a great example. If you think about him on the cross, Jesus spoke to two people. He spoke to a dying thief, and then he spoke to John and his mother. Those are the two people he spoke to. He arranged that, that for his widowed mother at that time, she would not have had Joseph around, arranged for her to have care. That's God's heart. John 19, 26 to 27 is where we find it. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, that's John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We just see Jesus' heart to care for, care for a widow in that moment. And so certainly God looks at situations all around. And he says, first and foremost, if a widow has any children at all around, they should be the first ones to, to pay back, um, um, uh, sorry, pay back their, their parent or maybe, maybe that's their grandmother, but, but, but give, serve, serve her. She spent many, many, many years, late nights, long days, serving the family, serving the kids, and it's time that they give back. Children owe it to their parents. So secondly, second argument he gives is children owe it to God. And it's the second half of verse uh, four. For this is good and acceptable before God. Why are we uh, commanded to honor our parents? Why are we commanded that? Well, it pleases him. It pleases God. He, he desires of that. Remember, he's the protector of widows. And what he says here is very interesting. He says that they can learn piety at home. That's godliness. Godliness must, must be learned in the home. You know, you know you're not going to learn godliness in the world. It's got to be learned in the home. And so you begin by showing them, this is how you're going to love the family. This is how you're going to serve the family. This is, this is what it means to care. Why? It reflects God's heart. He, he, he desires to provide. So children, they owe it to their own parents. They owe it to God because, well, he's commanded it. But a third argument is given, and it's not right away in verse 5. Could you skip down to verse 8 and look at it? It says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. His third reason is this, is to express and not deny the faith. It is an expression of faith. But when we don't do that, in a way, we're denying the faith. Now, I don't think what he's saying here is that a person who doesn't care for their parents is not a believer. That's not what he's saying there, that they, they've lost their salvation, but rather that they deny the core principle of Christianity. It's John 13, 34. We, we love one another. We, we serve one another. We're part of this wonderful family. And if we're not caring and providing for one another, what, why is anyone else going to want to be all along to this family, right? It doesn't make any sense. There should be wonderful care and provision here. And instead, it would appear that if you were providing for your own, that you're really neglecting care. Why, why would anyone want to be part of that? He says they're worse than an unbeliever. What that means is that even, even unbelievers, even unbelievers care for their, their loved ones. They, they even do that. But you know what they don't have? They don't have the command of God to do it. We have the command of God. We're to obey God and do that. And there can't be dichotomy between faith and conduct. Our conduct must match our creed. That's his point here. He gives one more argument for this in terms of the biological family being the first place, and it is actually at the very end of our passage in verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. There, the fourth reason is this, to relieve the church. A biological family exists if there are children, if there are, if there are uh, other members, grandchildren, whatever, whatever it is, they have to provide for widows. And we're told here they are to provide relief. That word relieve, aparkeo, means to, to give aid or to give uh, assistance, relief to, okay? They're to give the widows relief or assistance. The church cannot do collectively what people aren't willing to do individually. If there are individuals, the biological family has the primary responsibility so that the church isn't burdened unnecessarily. That's very interesting. I think a lot of times we just think like that just goes, that's just the church's responsibility. It reflects the heart of God. But Paul says, actually, no, hold on. If there's family, 
it begins there. Family are around, then they should provide for widows. They're the first um, place of responsibility, but there is a second place of responsibility. It's not just her biological family, and yes, it is the church family, okay? Her church family should provide if uh, these requirements are met. And here there are four requirements for support. And maybe you've noticed this word, but Paul's been repeatedly using a particular word in relation to widows. Have you noticed it yet? The word was really. Look at verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. Look at verse 5. Now she who was really a widow and left alone. See that? And then in verse 16, which we just read, the very last phrase, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Now he says that several times here. What, what is a widow who is really a widow? Or a widow indeed is what it literally uh, means. Well, firstly, a widow is really a widow if, if she's left all alone. There are no members of her family alive or around. That's in verse 5. Now she is who is really a widow and left alone. There it is. She has no family at all to help her. Um, and, and she may be a widow in the sense that she has no husband present, but if she has any other family, then she doesn't qualify uh, here. They have the obligation to, to care for her, but she must be truly alone. There's literally no one else around or available to provide help. She's really a widow is what he's saying. A second requirement for church support is that she must be a woman of God. She must be a believer, in other words. Look at verse 5 again. She who's really a widow and left alone trusts in God and uh, continues in supplication and prayers night and day. So she trusts in a God. She, she's placed her trust in Him. She is a believer. She trusts in the God who provides for widows. Of course, believers can provide for for non-Christian widows, it's not saying that you, you can't do that, but there's no obligation, no command by God for the churches to provide that care. Widows who've placed their hope and trust in Christ, who are truly alone, must get the care and provision from a church. But there's a third requirement. She's a woman of prayer. Do you see it there? She's continuing in prayer and supplications night and, and day. Literally just means constantly. She's a woman of prayer. You know, a great example of that type of woman is Anna the prophetess. You read of her in Luke chapter 2. She's a widow. In verse 36, it says this, there was a one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, had lived with the husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day, which just meant uh, continually. So she was constantly demonstrating with her life and her prayers, her dependence upon and devoted service to God. That's the type of woman she was. She was uh, really a great model, this woman, this Anna, of a godly widow who really is a widow, really is alone. So those are three requirements that are all given to us in the positive, but the fourth one comes to us as a negative. It's almost as if Paul says, but on the other hand, if they're like this, She's not really a widow if she is self-indulgent. There it is in verse 6. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Do you see that? If she's self-indulgent, sort of disqualifies her. That word pleasure there is spatalao, and it means indulgently, luxuriously, voluptuously. It is a word that's used only one other place in the New Testament, and it's by James. And in James 5, 5, I do want to show it to you because he's condemning people with that kind of lifestyle, who are just living wantonly and luxuriously. In James 5, 5, he says, you lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. The Greek translation of the Old, Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses the word in Ezekiel, and it's uh, careless ease. So it's just, it's just, using up her resources, living a life of pleasure with no thought of right or wrong, no thought to the church, no thought of providing uh, care or support or, or, or service. So he says she may be alive physically, but she's dead spiritually. She has no trust or hope in God, no, no dependence upon on him. So do you see what Paul is doing here? He's, he's laying down some very concrete uh, criteria for the use of kingdom resources. 
The money that comes in to churches is meant to be used for kingdom purposes. It's kingdom resources. And I think a lot of times, particularly with um, the social gospel that, that is prevalent, um, the, the heart of people is right. I think the heart of people is we want to help people who are suffering. We want to do these things. But he says you have to be very, very careful that kingdom resources are not being used to support sinful lifestyles. If there was a blanket thought that every widow, any woman who lost a husband, deserved funding from a church, she'd go live whatever way she wants, wantonly, luxuriously, live it out. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. These are kingdom resources. They go towards building the kingdom and caring for those who are truly in need within the kingdom. Does that make sense? But I think a lot of times we just, we just, we just forget these things because our hearts are big. We want to help others. But he says, you got to actually be very careful. That requires that we interview people, that we talk to them. We know about their family situations. We, we know if family's alive or not. We have to know those things because this, these are God's resources. They're, they're, they, it all belongs to him. So we have to be very, very careful about it. This is a very important criteria. So important that Paul concludes this section with verse 7. Look at it. He says, and these things command that they may be blameless. He says, you've got to make sure that you are following these, these, these guidelines. Command them. Because if you follow these principles, you'll be blameless. Remember that word? Above reproach. No one can bring an accusation against you. The church must only support widows who are really widows, deserving of kingdom resources, but refuse support to those who are not. There were many times, uh, particularly at Grace Chapel, um, I know I bring up examples, but we had a church building and we had foot traffic. We haven't had that, so we're going we're gonna to have that soon, so be ready. But, you know, people are coming in, they, they're needy, but what you start to find out is that you, you're, you're just enabling and, and so we started giving pastors assigned daily to meet with people as they would come in and, and find out what they needed and find out what they were doing. And a lot of times, sadly, you found out, you know, that they were pretty much doing this to every single church. Uh, and they had hordes of stuff in their cars. And so it doesn't, it doesn't help. And so it does require that we be discerning. And Paul is doing this with one group in a church that we would find. He says, you use these principles with, with widows. All right. Well, one final area we want to cover here with our time remaining here, and that is the area of uh, family service. We looked at respect within a church family, responsibility within a church family, but also uh, service. Look at verse uh, 9 here. He says this, Do not let a window, so widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Now, what's Paul talking about here? I do think he changes gears a bit here. There existed in, in the early church an order of widows. Um, they served in some sort of officially recognized capacity within the church. This, this section doesn't have anything to do with supporting widows. I think he ends that with verse 8. Here he brings up, now, there's an order. There's a list that widows can be added to, and you don't want to add them to this number unless, and he starts to give these, these things. Now, we know this is true because we have extra-biblical resources from Ignatius and Polycarp and Tertullian that give us some details that there was some kind of list, some kind of order of widows that existed. And here he says they, they should be taken into the number. And that word, that, that phrase is katalego, and it means to set down in a list. So don't let a widow who is under 60 uh, be taken into the number or added to this list. So while there were certain requirements for the support of widows, here we find different requirements and they have to be um, for a different purpose because now all of a sudden we have age entering the, the area. So there has to be something different. These are different. These are three requirements for service. We'll go through these quickly here. According to the extra biblical services, uh, uh, sorry, extra biblical sources that we have, we know that the order of widows existed, and we know that they had a thriving ministry in the church and the community. No doubt some of that would have been uh, baptizing uh, other women, other females, um, helping younger um, mothers with their children, visiting the sick, visiting those in prison, taking meals to people, teaching, discipling younger women. All of that would have been a role of an older widow in this area of service. So here we have these requirements, and the first is that they be older widows older widows. Verse 9 says, don't let them be 
under 60 on this list. They had to be 60 years or older. Why the age requirement? Well, 60 in that age, that time, um, in that culture, that was the age for people to retire and to just sort of live a life of contemplation. You know, Plato said 60 was the age of you become a priest or a priestess. You know, they sort of left the busy work and now I'll just go be sort of contemplative and holy and, and whatever. But it was also acknowledged at that age that the sexual passion started to wane. So there was no more longer any um, physical temptation because widows were going to have a lot of ministry in homes, weren't they? And so they had to be careful of the age requirement on those. They needed to be someone who had time, maturity, uh, character to develop reputation, all of those things, okay? So age was very important. Secondly, faithfulness, faithfulness. Look at verse nine, it says, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Very similar phrase we saw back with the uh, elder requirements of a one woman man. Well, here this is a one man woman. And I think you use the same principle that we did there. This doesn't exclude Women who had the gift of singleness, if this woman was never married, oh, she can't be on that necessarily. I, I just th think it simply means if she was married, she's got to be a, a role model for other younger women to follow. And that had to be a life of faithfulness. And the third is um, known for good works, good works. And in verse 10, it says that she's well reported for good works. And then a whole list of, of works and examples is, is given there. If she's brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's received the, uh, relieved the afflicted, uh, there's a whole list. So I don't think it means uh, make sure she's done all these things. I think we're given examples of good works. And again, brought up children, I don't think it means she's excluded if she never had uh, children of her own. I think she could have adopted or at least had a ministry with children. She has to have some experience, right? You're going to be going in and helping younger uh, women uh, to, to, to raise godly children. That was a role of an older woman, in, of older women in the church, and it should be today, if I can just add that. Older women who have that experience, that life experience and maturity, should be teaching the younger how to do that. We find that in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. It says, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's the role of an older woman in a church. It certainly would have been with these widows. They're to have a reputation for good works. It also goes on to say, lodged strangers, so that's just showing hospitality, wash the saints' feet. I don't think it literally means that they had to give them baths, but it's, it's humble service, isn't it? Um, relieve the afflicted, devoted to good works, energetically, diligently, um, given herself to the pursuit of service, doing good for the church. So she must have those three things. She must be the right age, uh, known for her faithfulness, uh, a reputation for good works. But then he goes on to say, what about younger widows? What about the younger ladies who have lost their husbands? Look at verse 11 here but refused the younger widows. A younger widow was not to be added to this list, to uh, this list of service. So he says, first, you need to refuse enrollment to a younger widow. Why? Why would you do that? He begins to give the reasons here. We'll go through these rather quickly. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. So basically he says their loyalty could begin to waver here. They have made a, a pledge. They've made a vow not to marry, to enter into that service. But a younger woman, that could just prove to be too much. And she could start to waver on that. Passions may draw her away from her vow of service. And you think about that could lead to some very difficult spiritual situations that are dangerous. You're going into homes. You're meeting vulnerable people. Vulnerable people. And so if they were having passions, who knows? She might start to have Feelings for that woman's husband. So she says, you have to be very, very careful. Their loyalty could waver. In fact, verse 12, it goes on, it says, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. Meaning that, that, that not her, her faith in Christ. Faith can also mean in the classical Greek, a pledge. And I do think that's what it's referring to here because they had to make a vow, a pledge. I'm not going to marry. So now they're starting to waver on that and they're, they're feeling condemned. Oh, I'm feeling 
I'm feeling led astray on this. Also, their lack of maturity would be an issue, uh, issue here because he goes on to speak about it in verse uh, 13. They learn to be, um, uh, besides this, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. That's, that just shows a lack of maturity. This is a younger woman. She hasn't had time to mature and, and, and grow. She doesn't have a reputation for good works. All those things are uh, really, this is the opposite of the older women in the church. This is the opposite of Titus uh, 3. So instead, he says, this is what you should do for younger women. You should encourage them to marry. Encourage them to marry. Verse 14, therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. Would you see that even in the Old Testament, widows were encouraged to remarry. If uh, marriage were delayed or if it were impossible for some reason, they were to remain in their father's house. That's, that's what they were to, uh, to do. But under the Levirate marriage, provision of the law, right? A widow's unmarried brother-in-law was to remarry her. And if he were already married, then the duty fell to the next of kin. And we kind of see that happening with Boaz and, and Ruth when you read through that story. But let me just show you that Paul speaks of this in two other areas where he encourages young women to marry. Romans 7, 3 is one of them. So that if while her husband lives, she remarries another man, she'd be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no, uh, she is, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So he says, you know, she's free from that law. She should go ahead and, and marry. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 is another one. A wife is bound by law. As long, or, long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So he must be a, a believer. So Paul does encourage elsewhere young people to remarry. Why? So they give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. There's no, there's no sort of beachhead that's been given in her life that Satan and his emissaries can use to sort of uh, accuse or bring reproach against Christ and his church. And Paul sadly reveals that some have already turned aside to Satan. You know, we, um, I think this means they, they probably already gave in to those desires. They probably already created some situations that Paul was worried about. Perhaps they married unbelievers, or perhaps they started following some of the false teachers. We learned about Hymenaeus and Alexander that Paul turned over to Satan in the beginning. Maybe they themselves were spreading some of the false doctrine, or they had given themselves to various sins. Whatever it was, um, they were no longer serving Christ, he says, but they're, they're serving Satan. So here Paul is talking about, in this whole section, hopefully you've been able to see this, is family uh, service within the, the family of God. The goal through our serving one another here and to bearing responsibility to care for one another and to extend the proper respect, all these things we've looked around, looked at, ultimately is to bring glory to Christ, is to make the family of God beautiful. We're brought into this wonderful family, all of us, we're brought into this wonderful family through the cross of Christ. We're adopted into the family, and it does take a bit to learn what our conduct must be, particularly if maybe we've not had earthly families that model these things very well, and I think that's why Paul gives out such clear, clear instruction for us. But here's what I'd like to say, glory be to God who gives us such a wonderful family where we can practice these things. So let's, let's practice those things. Let's, let's, let's address one another with respect. We have such a great responsibility to carry out for one another and for, and for Christ, and what a great opportunity to serve one another. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me just pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Well, I know that was a lot. We thank you for this section of scripture. We thank you for the detail we find in scripture, even over, over things like this. Uh, Lord, we pray for discernment. We pray for wisdom. Lord, our, our hearts are big to help help the needy, to help those who, who need help. But Lord, at the same time, we see that there, there, is, uh, there is discernment that, that is needed there. There is wisdom that is needed to, 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 be, to be careful and wise with uh, kingdom resources. We pray that you would uh, give that to us, Lord, that you'd help us um, as we seek to meet uh, needs that need to be met, that we're commanded to, to meet. Lord, we pray for our church family, Lord, that we would, we would look for opportunities to serve uh, one another, that we would be happy to carry up responsibilities in the, in the church, and that we would, uh, Lord, 
just address one another with respect and all the um, conversations that we have, remembering that we are family, remembering that we're of the household of God. You're our Father, and we want to represent you well. So we pray that you would help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.